This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Violent crime has been on our minds, obviously, with the attack in Orlando. But even before that, because the first weekend in June saw several shootings in Denver. The picture is complex. Mass shootings have become more common in the United States. Meanwhile, violent crime overall has been on the decline locally and nationally for years, despite a more recent uptick in murders in large U.S. cities, including Denver. We're going to get our heads around these trends with the help of University of Denver criminologist Scott Phillips. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you. What can you say about the incidence of mass shooting in the United States? And maybe define that for us. So Mother Jones has created a database and they define a mass shooting as having several characteristics. Uh, The primary motive is mass murder, not robbery or gang violence or domestic violence. So the primary motive is mass murder. It occurs in a public place and there are at least four victims. And what is the trend in that arena? Uh, The trend is that mass shootings are absolutely on the rise. So, for example, if we look at the 25-year period from 1982 to 2006, there were 40 mass shootings with 302 people killed. But in the past 10 years, from 2007 to the present, there were 41 mass shootings, 369 people killed. So the bottom line is that in the past 10 years, there has been roughly the same number of shootings and victims as the previous 25. And what uh, the magazine Mother Jones found jibes with what the Harvard School of Public Health has found, that these public mass shootings have increased over the past five years in particular. Let's put that against the backdrop of violent crime in general, and maybe we can start nationally and then look locally. So the irony is that even though mass shootings are clearly on the rise, the overall homicide rate has been plummeting since the early 1990s. So to take Denver as our example, it is true that crime went up in 2015, but it remains at historic lows. At historic lows? What do you mean when you say that? Uh, Are we talking decades? What I mean is that crime has been on the decline since the early 1990s. And for example, if we look at the murder rate in Denver, uh, back in 1990, it was more than twice what it was in 2015. And if you look back even further, what's the trend? Uh, Crime was high from about 1960 until the early 1990s, and it started dropping in the early 1990s and has remained low. And so the recent uptick uh, might be the start of a new trend or it might be a blip in what has been a long-term decline. All right. So the blip, you say, meaning this uh, kind of relative spike in 2015 in Denver and other cities. Correct. So – To give a little more concrete numbers, if we look at 1992, when the murder rate in Denver reached its most recent peak, there were 20 murders for every 100,000 people. In our most recent figure of 2015, that is eight per 100,000. So it is less than half of what it was. So the first weekend in June, five people died from gun violence in Denver Where do things stand so far this year in the area? So it's hard to predict, obviously. Uh, We're just in June, but the numbers suggest that we're roughly on par to have about the same murder rate in 2016 as we did in 2015. Uh, But keep in mind that the murder rate in 2015 for Denver was, again, less than half what it was uh, in 1992. How many murders were there in 2015? Just put that into perspective. 54. 54. 
compared to about 95 in 1992. That's correct. And remember that in 1992, the population was smaller. So we have far less murders despite more people. And yet in some places, some neighborhoods even, it might feel more dangerous. So these statistics are over perhaps a city or a metro area. But what about, you know, pockets of violence? And I guess that would relate to gang violence. Absolutely. So there are definitely neighborhoods that are hurting. And I would never want to say anything that minimizes the tragedy of a killing simply to say that the rate of murder has absolutely gone down. And it is true that it is often concentrated in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, but that's always been the case. So it's not that it might be more concentrated in those places today versus, say, in the 1990s. I have not seen research suggesting that it is more concentrated. Uh, In fact, even going back to classic research in the city of Chicago in the early 1900s, Crime was concentrated in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods. So that is a very old phenomenon. And so in those places, even though the trend has been downward in terms of murderous violent crime, it may not feel like it on your block. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Because in some places, if we were to constrain it to a particular neighborhood, it would be very, very high. As we've established, the murder rate and violent crime rose significantly in the 80s and early 90s. Correct. That was true in Colorado, the rest of the country. Then it started to go down. I understand that there are lots of theories about why crime went up and then fell. Um, Why don't we run through a few of them? What would you say is at the top of the list for criminologists? It's hard to say what's at the top of the list. I don't think anyone has figured out exactly which theory matters the most. Mm. There are just several possible explanations. So in no particular order, some people feel that it's a product of the legalization of abortion, that with abortion becoming legal in the early 1970s, you would expect a crime drop 17 to 25 years later because most crime is committed by people between the ages of 17 to 25. So not only do you have less people in their crime-prone years, the people who would have been born but were not would have often been born into some of the most disadvantaged circumstances. Is this a controversial theory? It is a controversial theory. However, the flip side of the same coin is that crime went up in the 1960s and 70s uh, and early 80s because of the baby boomers coming into their crime-prone years, and that is not controversial. But it is exactly the same argument that if you have a growth in the number of people between age 17 to 25, you expect more crime. If you have a reduction in the number of people between age 17 and 25, you expect less crime. Mm. So the effect of having the baby boomer generation born is the flip side of the same coin as legalizing abortion. What about the lead paint, lead gas theory, which I've heard a lot about? The lead paint theory is supported by some fairly strong evidence that once we pulled lead out of gas, again, you would expect 17 to 25 years later a reduction in crime because lead isn't uh, affecting the brains of young children. And the Um, idea was that there was some connection to criminality. Exactly, because lead is toxic at any level and it can reduce a child's ultimate level of self-control. And criminologists know that a person's level of self-control, their ability to resist the temptation of the moment, has a strong connection to crime, whether that temptation is to rob or to steal or to punch someone who's made you angry. If your ability to exercise self-control is limited, 
then your chance of getting involved in crime is higher. How about the availability of crack cocaine? Because that was often connected to crime in the 80s and 90s. Exactly. So another theory is that there was a reduction in the use of crack. A new generation of drug users turned to marijuana and that that causes far less violence than does crack. And so that is often seen as one of the reasons crime began to decline in the early 1990s. And yet now we're seeing more reliance on prescription drugs and heroin. Um, is that something you're watching as a criminologist? It's definitely something to keep an eye on. But again, the trend has been declining murder rates, except for a potentially small reversal in 2015. Uh, and another key potential explanation is the role of increasing incarceration between 1980 and 2010, we went from having about 500,000 people in jail and prison to over 2 million. Wow. So a quadrupling? Yes. And uh, tell me how that would connect. In other words, with all of those folks off the streets, there's just naturally less opportunity for crime. It's not only that you're incapacitating violent people, it's that the same violent person often commits several violent acts. So if you have 10 violent crimes, you don't have 10 violent offenders. You have some number less than that who've committed multiple acts. So by putting some of the worst offenders behind bars, it absolutely brings the rate of crime down. And again, there's a lot of debate about how many people the United States incarcerates and to what end. And yet that's not a permanent state, right? Because most of those people will get out of prison. That's exactly right. Uh, the vast, vast majority will one day be released. And so even if mass incarceration is bringing down the rate of crime now, it's very possible that there's a long-term boomerang effect where you have people coming out of prison who, whose problems are as bad or worse than going into prison in terms of addiction, in terms of not being able to find a job, in terms of not being rehabilitated. So whatever short-term effect is happening may not be a long-term solution. Yeah, I think that one thing I've learned in this conversation is that an action one day can affect crime a dozen years later. And often in ways that are unintended. No one took lead out of gas or legalized abortion with the thought of bringing down crime. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Scott Phillips is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Denver. Coming up, giving independent voters a voice in primaries. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's largest political party is no party at all. 34% of registered voters in Colorado are unaffiliated, and that group is growing faster than Republicans or Democrats. Currently, independents have no say in presidential caucuses or primaries here. But that could change, as CPR's Megan Verlee reports. Given that one in three Colorado voters is unaffiliated, it wasn't hard to find more than a few of them hitting up the food trucks gathered in Denver's Civic Center Park this week. South American sandwich in hand, Richard Green was willing to delay his lunch for a few minutes to talk politics. Why do you stay unaffiliated? Uh, because neither of the major parties in the country represent my views well, and the third parties are a little too fringy and radical to uh, put my name next to it. That choice relegates Green to spectator status at primary time. 
Not being able to participate leaves him feeling like he has less of a voice in Colorado's politics. It's okay, but it's diminished, you know? There's more nuance when you're picking from the primary candidates. So, uh, yeah, it would be a little better if uh, unaffiliated voters could vote in primaries here. It just so happens that some powerful people in the state agree with Green on that point. The Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce is backing a pair of initiatives to move Colorado to a presidential primary and to open all primaries to independent voters. Kelly Bruff heads the chamber. She says the idea bubbled up out of a series of focus groups with local business leaders. They were asked, What are the most critical issues we have to address in the next 10 years to ensure Colorado's economic future? Most of the answers were what you'd expect. Roads, education, water. But one of them was you really need to engage all voters in Colorado's elections. And that middle kind of pragmatic voter is not engaged. The business community hopes getting unaffiliated voters involved in primaries will ease some of the political gridlock in Washington, D.C. and Denver. Bruff says she hears all too often from state lawmakers that they'd be willing to compromise more if that didn't leave them vulnerable to a primary challenge. There's a lot of room to solve issues if you're not only trying to solve it for 8 percent of each extreme on the political spectrum. So far, the chamber has invested $100,000 in this effort, hoping one dividend will be a more moderate state legislature. But they may have misread the market. Researchers disagree over how much open primaries really affect who gets elected. DU political science professor Seth Maskett has looked into it. His work asked exactly this question. Do open primaries lead to more bipartisanship? And the answer he found? Actually, no. Maskett says part of the problem is turnout. Unaffiliateds tend not to, at least for primaries. And even when they do, they still may not find a compromiser on their ballot. Parties tend to be very active in picking the sorts of people they like and giving them real advantages in terms of fundraising, in terms of endorsements, and helping those people win in primaries. And that tends to be true whether it's an open or a closed system. For many party members and leaders, open primaries present an existential threat, undermining the whole purpose of political parties. Republican State Senator Kevin Lundberg. The party needs to be able to select their nominee. When you have an open primary, you've really diminished that selection process. Now, I should explain, the ballot measure in the works would not create truly open primaries. Democrats would still only get the Democratic ballot. Republicans would only get the Republican. Independent voters, though, would get a ballot that let them choose which party's primary to vote in. They would have to stick with one party for all races, though. State lawmakers tried to head off the initiative by introducing a bill to make it easier for independent voters to temporarily affiliate with a party to vote in its primary. That failed. But Democratic State Party Chair Rick Palacio argues temporary affiliation might actually make Colorado elections run a whole lot more smoothly by giving campaigns a better idea of where so-called independent voters stand politically. Modern campaigns are really based on data, and it's targeting and tracking of voter behaviors. The more information that we know, the less uh, resource that we have to spend in trying to further identify people and then get them out to vote. A lot of voters would probably be happy to hear less from the campaigns during the general election. But for many of Colorado's unaffiliated voters, the real priority is to get their voices heard much earlier in the process. I'm Megan Verley, CPR News. Here's an idea for a summer hike. Trek to a waterfall. 
Susan Joy Paul is a writer and mountaineer from Colorado Springs. She documents cascades, plunges, and bridal veils in her guidebook, Hiking Waterfalls in Colorado. And Susan, welcome to the program. Hi. What's, nice to meet you, Ryan. Nice to meet you, too. What sparked your interest in Colorado's waterfalls? Well, I was already an avid hiker, uh, but generally focused on peaks, doing peaks. Uh, At the time, I I was working on a a book on touring Colorado hot springs, and I decided to add a section in each chapter about area highlights, other things to do while you were visiting the hot springs. Well, there's a lot of hot springs in the southwest part of the state. And so after a little research, I realized there's a lot of spectacular waterfalls down there, too. Um, so I added that to my area, area highlights. And from there, I thought, wow, I should just do a book on waterfalls. Do you have a sense of how many there are in Colorado? There's close to 500 known waterfalls, probably hundreds more that aren't known. Oh, I love the idea of unknown waterfalls. Mm-hmm. And um, you say that exploring the state's waterfalls was uh, a bit more difficult than you anticipated. Is mm-hmm. that because some of them are so remote? Yeah, some of them are very remote. I mean, I did some 16-mile hikes to them. Um, they're not well-documented. I mean, when you're doing climbing mountains, a lot of that's very well documented. As far as waterfalls go, there's just not that much information out there. Uh, I found a lot of them just by looking at maps. If you look at a map, uh, the waterways have cross hatchings where the waterfalls exist. And so I would figure out the GPS waypoints, try to find trails nearby. Sometimes it's a lot of off-trail hiking too, though. And so in many ways, this guidebook you put together is the first kind of, uh, I don't know about documenting, but uh, putting together of of this information. Mm -hmm. It's the first really comprehensive guide, I think, with all the waypoints that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that waterfalls also change. They they appear, reappear, disappear. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, it it has a lot to do with how much snowfall we have, and that's going to affect the snowmelt. If there's a lot of snowmelt, obviously you're going to have some pretty intense, wonderful, powerful waterfalls out there. Sometimes we have really dry years, uh, like in 2012, where less less water. Um, and so the waterfalls dry up. We also have floods. <laughs> I'm sure you remember 2013, and that can change a riverbank where, you know, some of the waterfalls I actually went to, I could get to, but they were so dangerous because they were so overgrown or the banks had been washed away that um, I left them out of my book because it was just too dangerous for people to get to. You'd have to like hang over a cliff, hanging onto a tree to view them. So I thought I'm not going to send people out to these places. Um, but also oftentimes I'd be out uh, in search of a waterfall. I'd find other waterfalls along the way. Ah, little mm-hmm. surprises along the way. Yep. Tell us about the most photographed falls in the state. This is in southwest Colorado. Is that near Creed, I think? Yeah, North Clear Creek Falls is probably the most photographed waterfall there is. It's it's gorgeous. Um, it's very photogenic. I mean, you stand at the top of it. It's protected by a fence now because I know several people have died there. Um, but you can you stand across from it, across this huge chasm, and you can see it tumbling down over 100 feet into the cavern below. Uh, that's probably the most photographed. It's stunning. Uh, you know, I, I won't say it's not, but there's other falls out there that are less known. Okay. That are just as gorgeous. And I can hear the people who know about these falls ruining us for telling others about them. But what would you <laughs> what would you put in that category? Um what do you mean? For not telling people about them? No, for telling people about them but that, that are less well known. Okay. I would say probably the the most gorgeous ones that I found that were probably less known or like Apache Falls that's down in uh, the Greenhorn Mountain Wilderness. 
It's a beautiful hike, stunning hike, very unexpected when you get to this waterfall that's falling down from above you. You're in this deep cut in a canyon, um, and it's just very unexpected. Uh, Silver Falls, west of Bogosa Springs, it's a short drive, a really short hike, but it's a very sparkling Bridal Veil Fall. It's the color's really beautiful and the dark rock. It's very white, sparkly water, a bridal, bridal fall over dark rock, which is really stunning. And then Rough Creek Falls down near Antonito is another short hike to a stunning waterfall. And um, those ones I hadn't read much about. And so I was really overwhelmed when I saw them, how beautiful they were. They're just not very well known. Um, and I didn't expect it. And other waterfalls you do expect to be beautiful. And, you know, they always live up to their their image. Um, I don't think I've ever been disappointed by one. Yeah. What is it about waterfalls that are so intoxicating, do you think? Well, I think part of it is, um, you know, hiking in general is good for you. It makes you feel good, puts you in a great mood. And you get out there and you see a waterfall and they're just stunning to look at, especially if uh, if the light's shining on them. If there's sunlight, makes for a much better photograph. Uh, the sound of the waterfall is very soothing. Um, also, uh, followers of feng shui will tell you feng shui actually means wind water. And so that's why some people who follow the philosophy of feng shui have waterfalls in their homes. You see them sometimes in doctor's offices. They're very soothing. Yeah. And when the water hits something, it releases negative ions into the air, which are molecules with a negative charge. Um, and some people believe that those get into your blood st- bloodstream and increase the blood flow to your head and put you in a very good mood. Um, there's some clinical trials around this, lots of books written about it. I'm not myself a follower of feng shui, but I can tell you I am one of those people who are affected by it because it put me in a great mood. Anytime I got to a waterfall, it's very overwhelming, uh, very happy experience. Susan Joy Paul is our guest, author of Hiking Waterfalls in Colorado. And there are a number of falls that take on a really beautiful color, I, I think particularly in Pagosa Springs, because of the nature of the rock and, and minerals there. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. It's the minerals that get caught up in the water. It's also the rock that they're falling over um, if they're in the sunlight. So it's going to depend on the aspect, if they're facing north, south, east, or west, and where the sun is at the time. Um, some waterfalls would probably be much more spectacular if they were in the sunlight, but they're not. They're in the dark, so you know they're not as uh, not as spectacular. Um, but other ones, like the ones I mentioned, Silver Falls, for instance, just beautiful the way that the light hits it, Rough Creek Falls and um, and other falls like that. I understand that Rainbow Falls in Manitou Springs, uh, mm-hmm. also known by locals as Graffiti Falls, mm-hmm. um, is is colorful for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. T- t- describe what that looks like. I've seen a photo of this. And I was really disappointed when I went to Rainbow Falls, not by the fall itself. Honestly, it's one of the most beautiful falls in southern Colorado. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people paint graffiti on the bridge in front of it and the rocks around it. Even the rocks on the ground have graffiti. However, um, uh, the county purchased the land and is cleaning it all up. I haven't been there in the past few months, but from what I understand, it's all cleaned up. They're painting over the graffiti, um, you know, putting in some uh, benches and picnic tables and things. However, the last time I was there, it's probably about a year ago, I could see where they had painted over a lot of the graffiti. But the same day, I saw people out there with paint cans, which is kind of sad. I mean, anyone who enjoys the outdoors in Colorado knows that you don't you don't trash the place. You don't paint things. You don't and that the natural beauty is enough. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What precautions should you take if you go hiking waterfalls? I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that it can be a bit dicey in places. Right. And, uh, well, you're going to be near a waterway, so you have to keep that in mind. Uh, m- most of the 
time spring, winter and spring, even late fall, you should have traction for your feet, like microspikes or something, because the trails are going to be icy. Yeah. I have usually one trekking pole. Carry a pack just like I would on any hike with the 10 essentials. Let someone know where you're going, uh, where the trailhead is, what kind of car you're driving, what your license plate is, you know, best time to call back. Let them know the latest time you're going to call so that if something happens, they can call uh, you know, emergency services for you. And these are good tips for hiking in general. They are. When you get near a waterfall, because mm-hmm. my understanding is that people die every year in waterfall accidents, mm-hmm. what, what to keep in mind? Well, you don't want to stand in the water above a cliff where a waterfall's running down because, you know, they they run with a lot of force. They can pull you right over the edge. And people want to get lovely photos of them standing at the top of a waterfall, and it's a really bad idea. Um, so you don't stand in the in the water above a waterfall. You also, also should not stand directly under a waterfall because of the danger of rockfall. Of rockfall. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how about one more idea for a waterfall close to Metro Denver? Close to Metro Denver. Well, I would like to go see Elk Falls. That's one I haven't been to yet. It was on private property when I was writing my book. It's open to the public now. I've heard wonderful things about it. So I'm eager to go. And that's, uh, that's near where? Elk Falls is in Staunton uh, State Park. Staunton State Park. Which is park. a new park mm-hmm. that opened after I finished my book. Uh, I'd say Boulder Falls is really beautiful. And that's a super short hike right off the highway. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Susan Joy Paul of Colorado Springs wrote Hiking Waterfalls in Colorado, a guide to the state's best waterfall hikes. There's more at our website, including photos at cprnews.org. When we come back, they lined up to be healed by him. The story of Denver faith healer Francis Schlaughter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. In Denver in the 1890s, thousands would line up to see a man they believed could heal them with his touch. Francis Schlaughter gained international attention, only to disappear, be presumed dead, and then possibly resurface. David Wetzel traces Schlaughter's life in his new book, Vanishing Messiah. He spoke with Andrea Dukakis. David, thanks for being here. Thank you, Andrea. Who was Francis Schlaughter? He was one of the most significant healers of the 19th century, almost forgotten today. But he was known throughout the country in one short, brief period of time because of his Christ-like appearance and his Christ-like manner and the fact that he was healing thousands and thousands of people. And we'll talk a little bit about whether he was healing, whether that was actually happening. But He was an immigrant, and he started his career as a cobbler and then transitioned to faith healer. When did he start trying to heal people? Actually, he said that he had a vision in 1893 as a cobbler in Denver in which he heard the voice of God commanding him to go on a pilgrimage and go wherever the Father told him to. And during that pilgrimage, he treated some of the Indians in the American West Uh, It took him to California. It took him all over the American West. And he then developed the skills to be able, and the confidence to be able to heal. And how quickly did he gain a a big following? Well, he broke into public attention in Albuquerque when he arrived from his pilgrimage in July of 1895 and began quietly healing people in the villages south of Albuquerque along the Rio Grande. And within just 
days, reporters heard stories from these folks and the news went out almost immediately across the country. As far away as the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune had stories about him. And what kinds of conditions did people come to him for? Well, it varied. Mostly uh, they were suffering from rheumatism, arthritis, and aches and pains. But there were people who had, say, boils. They might have certain kinds of symptoms of disease, symptoms of cancer. They were probably fewer in number than the people who could get relief pretty quickly. Can you give me a picture of how this all would work, how he would heal people? Um, He'd go to private homes where he was staying, and he'd work out of there. But what did it look like? It was basically a personal, intense touching, mostly by hands, but sometimes Schlatter might touch the back of someone's head. And it was a very intense experience for the people who underwent it. Some people said they experienced an electric shock. In the book, you write about um, when Schlatter's healing powers worked and when people weren't healed. Do you think he had healing powers? I don't have any evidence to suppose that he had divine powers, but I do think there was some sort of interaction going on between him and the people who came to him. It may have been that when you're standing in line with hundreds of people watching you, and you've been moving on toward the goal for hours, and you finally meet a man who is considered to be Christ-like, if not Christ, you have got to have some sort of emotional state that will bring about, I think, a psychological or psychosomatic reaction. Can you describe an instance where it really seemed like Schlatter had healed someone? Yeah, there was a time when reporters interviewed a woman who had boils all over her face, and they would generally interview people who came from his hands, basically to test whether you know they had been healed or not. And as they interviewed this woman, the boils slowly disappeared. Hmm. That impressed the reporters. <laughs> Were there folks who thought he was just a fake? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, most reporters at that time who first heard about him were skeptical. And he had the ability to, within just a few days, to change their minds. And that was an episode, you know, that I just mentioned that might have done that. But by the time he was well into his healing uh, ministry in Denver, there was hardly a report on him that was in any way negative. They might not have gushed, but they were talking about what they saw. And most of those reports were sympathetic. I want you to read a little bit from the book. You describe the throngs that came to see Schlatter in Denver. My modern day version of this is when there are lines to get a new iPhone now, a little different. But at one point, Schlatter staying and working out of the home of the Fox family, I think there are several hundred people, and then the crowds grow over days. But could you read a passage about that? Sure. The scene in front of the Fox home took on the character of a holy shrine, and soon it became known as the New Mount. But instead of Christ dividing loaves and fishes among the multitude, modern-day vendors sold sandwiches, popcorn, peanuts, and watermelon— and one lemonade stand operator sent bare-legged urchins with tin buckets and cups into the crowd. Some Denverites brought their own food, like one German family that unwrapped a picnic basket of cheese sandwiches and beer, 
to the envy of those around them. Each day's line of pilgrims brought some new affliction or disability. A child's blindness, a legless man propped on a wooden cane, a woman with an ulcerous mouth, or some kind of horrendous injury. And just to put this in a little context, were there a lot of faith healers back then? Was that a thing? It was, but nothing like the kind of mass healing that he performed. There were religious healers. There were people who belonged to what's known as the holiness movement who would do healing by touch, which was considered the Christ method of healing. Uh, Francis Slaughter took anyone, and he drew hundreds of people almost from the beginning, which was not typical of most healers of that time. And you describe him as having just extreme empathy for people. Very much so. Um, He was Christ-like in his manner. He had a sense of authority about him. He was confident as a healer. He was able to give people a sense that they were in the hands of someone who was more than average in terms of their spiritual state. Was he able to make a living for his work? Um, How did he live day to day? Well, like Francis of Assisi, uh, through whom he was named, he took no money at all, and he took no gifts. And he relied in Denver on the kindness of the Fox family. And they provided him with food and shelter. In Albuquerque, before he was brought to Denver, the same thing happened. Families took him in and sought to his needs. But he never once looked to material goods for his livelihood. At some point, Schlatter leaves Denver. He spends time in New Mexico on a ranch and then disappears suddenly. How does someone who's so well-known just disappear? Well, he had the help of some of the supporters of his in Denver. They were very close. They believed in his mission, and they believed, as he told them, that he had to leave Denver, and he had to leave Denver by vanishing from Denver. That was part of his plan. And I think just the act of doing that uh, just created a national stir. So the, the curiosity and what happened to him continued. The idea that he was going to go away and perhaps... Come back. Come back. 18 months later, though, his skeleton was reportedly found in Mexico. There was speculation, though, that it wasn't really his. And quickly, someone claiming to be Schlatter showed up in Cleveland. Then others claiming to be him surfaced, too. Were any of them the real Francis Schlatter? Well, I meant the case that one is. And he was a man who fascinated me primarily because he wrote a book in 1903 called Modern Miracles of Healing, which was an autobiography. And I found it immediately to be filled with lies. So in order to get to the point where I could be convinced that he was a real healer, I had to go through a mass of misinformation, lies, and falsehoods. And it was a unique research experience for me. Why do you think he would have written a book and added all these lies? Well, this man got married, and he had a rocky relationship with his wife. And she had many friends who said, you were probably not married to the real healer. So she asked him to prove that he was, and she wanted him to write a book to do so. And 
he was caught in a bind in being asked to write a book about himself because he had, in the way I argue it, he had created so much duplicity in vanishing and returning and carrying on a new healing career that he couldn't afford to tell the outright truth. Now, I think there's, I have to admit, there are four out of five forensic scientists who say this is not the man. But there's one who says this is definitely the man. So, you know, the scientific community, if you if you weighted it, more on the side of no than yes, but uh, there is ample evidence aside from image comparison that weights it the other way. The size of this second man's hands are enormous, and that was true of the original healer. They had other things that were similar, the same color eyes, the same height. So there is an argument, I think, that can be made, especially considering the behavioral information that I discuss in the book. Yes, uh, you talk in the book about similarities between this slaughter and the earlier slaughter. They were both reserved, very humble. As you said, they had similar, very large hands. And people also said they had uh, similar scars and birthmarks. And this Francis Schlatter, if you're to believe he's the real thing, was so renowned early on, but his life became very tragic. What happened? Well, part of my argument is that the original Schlatter believed that the world as it was was coming to an end in 1899 because he believed that the powers that be across the world had so oppressed the people that... God was going to bring about an Armageddon in that year and would create a new Jerusalem to follow the turn of the 20th century. That never happened. And my argument is that his vision vaporized, basically. disillusioned. Disillusioned completely. This story is really more about the effect of a belief or a delusion on one man than on a, you know, than on a whole population. But it played out in his life through alcoholism, through abuse of his wife, and the failure of his healing ministry over time. David, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Andrea. David Wetzel wrote Vanishing Messiah about Denver faith healer Francis Schlatter. Read an excerpt and see a photo of Schlatter at cprnews.org. Up next, what happens to a dream deferred? This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many people give up a talent in their youth and later wonder what would life be like if they'd stuck with it or if they tried it again. For Bob Biber of Evergreen, trying again sounds like this. This is Biber playing Chopin in the CPR Performance Studio. As a teen in Denver, Biber was a promising musician, but his physician father disapproved, so he gave it up and went to medical school. Now 64, the retired doctor will perform at the prestigious Clyburn International Amateur Piano Competition next week. Bob, thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Will you paint us a picture of younger you? What was it like growing up in Denver and taking piano lessons. Piano lessons were a major part of my life back then, certainly enough to 
label me a music geek at the school, and I believe that with another lady I was the uh, class musician for 1970 in Westminster High School. And what would that entail? We played Bridge Over Troubled Water at graduation. How's that? On a piano and a violin. <laughs> okay. I hated piano lessons as a kid. Did you like them? There was a time when I hated them. My mother even has a story when I was in fourth or fifth grade where I kind of gross, but I kind of threw up on the piano because I just didn't want to do it and just absolutely refused. Wait, how would that lead you to throwing up? <laughs> just one of those emotional times, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there was a time when I was sort of forced to practice, but when I finally got a a real musician for a piano teacher, uh, my whole outlook on music kind of turned around. And who was that? There's a lady in Denver by the name of Dr. Cornelia Vertenstein. She wasn't a doctor at that time or a doctor of music, uh, but she subsequently finished her DMA at the University of Colorado, I believe, and now she's definitely Dr. Vertenstein. Is she still around? She still uh, has a full studio of students. Not including you or including uh, Not including okay. me. Not including me. And I promised I wouldn't tell her age at any point. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, your father was a physician, and I understand that he disapproved of a career in music for you. He wanted you to follow in his footsteps and become a doctor. How did he make that known? That was pretty much implied, subconscious. His position, his uh, occupation was the one-all be-all. Uh, he was a surgeon in a small town in Colorado, in Trinidad, uh, where I grew up in my early years before uh, my parents split apart and we came up to the Denver area. He made it perfectly clear that I could always uh, do medicine and have music on the side, but I could never do music and have medicine. And I thought, at that time, it didn't make a lot of sense to me, but certainly it is uh, borne out. I'm just making a connection. Is your dad Stanley Biber? He is Stanley Biber. The worldwide well-known surgeon who did um, gender reassignment surgeries and, and was a pioneer in that field. That was my father, yes. And so he, he loomed large, I, I must imagine. Yeah, he, he was a big figure in terms of authority, I should say, in my life. And uh, even though we were apart a lot since I lived up here and he was in Trinidad. Do you think he was wrong to push you into a medical career? Not necessarily, because, uh, you know, at the time... I'm not sure I 100% knew what I wanted to do. You know, medicine uh, was certainly something I was going to be able to do, and that was sort of the safe choice for me. And the less safe choice would have been music? No question about it. I mean... That's where your heart was? You know, I loved music, and looking back on it, however many years later, 40 years later, I wonder if I made the right choice. I loved medicine. I loved taking care of people. I enjoyed my career as a surgeon. In, I was in Kansas City after medical school and residency. I'm still teaching two days a week at the medical school here in Parker, Rocky Vista University. So I'm keeping my hand in and giving back a little bit. Did it feel like you were tamping something down or denying yourself something? Only when I let myself feel that. There were times when, you know, with the Medicare and insurance and liability hassles of medicine, you wondered, when in the world did I do this? But I played a reasonable amount Throughout through my medical career, mm. um, but obviously not enough to take it to another level. You became a, a urologist, Correct. raised a family in Kansas City. You and your wife have four daughters. Two of them are professional musicians. One plays cello, the other clarinet. Right. And my Cellist daughter is still is very active. 
Uh, my clarinetist daughter has made somewhat of a lateral move and now is an organic farmer and caterer. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, from an economic standpoint, that's pretty much a lateral move. How, how did your own experience color how you guided your children in the pursuit of music? Uh, music was mandatory in our house. Uh, all four daughters had to play the piano. That was not even a question about that. The, the discipline of playing the piano and what you learn from playing the piano is something you can't match in school uh, anywhere else. It's something that you take with you forever. It gives you a whole different way of thinking. And I, I just kind of pounded that into them, and that was just a mandatory part of their upbringing. And when the two said, you know, Dad, I'm going to pursue a career in music, what was your reaction? My reaction was, I hope you really love it, because it's not necessarily a very easy life. Uh, if you're passionate about it and that's what your passion is leading you, go for it. When you retired from urology, you returned to the piano. You've been accepted at the prestigious Clyburn Piano Competition in the amateur division, which is for adults over 35 who don't make a living playing piano. Correct. There are 72 pianists from 21 countries, and concert pianist Olga Kern is chairwoman of the jury. That sounds really intimidating. I was just about to say, <laughs> I'm already having performance anxiety. You didn't need to say all that. <laughs> <laughs> How are you practicing? How are you getting ready? You know, I've been I've been practicing a lot. You know, ask my wife. That's what I do these days is practice. Of course, that leads me out of any yard work or dishes or anything around the house. Oh, I see, this this, practice, is, a, this is a pass. <laughs> yeah, it's a definite pass. You know, I, I really, in the last three months or so, tried to crescendo the amount of time that I was spending playing the piano because when I auditioned for this thing, it was like, uh, this is kind of a lark. I probably won't get into it. I had no idea. And I, I sent in the video audition. And then March 1st, I believe it was, when they announced it and they sent me the email saying that I'd been accepted. My first reaction is, what in the world have I got myself into? So I thought, I'm going to go down there uh, to Fort Worth on the stage and I don't want to make a fool of myself, but... We'll see how it goes. Any chance that your high school piano teacher will, I don't know, either be down there with you at the competition or at least offer some tips? I've actually played for her a couple times, and after I leave this interview, I'm going to her house to play for her. And how, do, how does she find your form these days? Uh, she said, I've matured somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Since you were in high school. Yeah, I yeah, said, that, that's a help. good thing to know. <laughs> It's it's actually very emotional playing for her. I mean, after not playing for her since I was 18 years old. And uh, she was a huge influence on my life, especially as I look back of what she gave me uh, and what way of thinking and how she really teaches the uh, the art of music and the art of piano playing, not playing the notes and, and uh, uh, just playing the music. It's uh, it's something special that she does. And, and remind me of her name. Her name is uh, Nellie Vertenstein. Vertenstein. Yes. And... She will be able to watch, because the whole competition is being live-streamed, not to add any more pressure to the competitors, <laughs> but every round and every note will be live-streamed uh, from their website. So, Is there a takeaway in your life, in your experience, about, and I don't want to make it too cheesy or too easy or simplistic, but about following one's passions, or even about returning to them? It's never too late or something? I don't yeah, know. I, I think... I was on the 30-30-30 plan, 30 years of, of getting ready for things, 30 years of medicine, and, and 30 years to do something else, which my passion, I, I knew I wanted to practice piano and play the piano and just kind of see where it took me at that point. And I've had some uh, 
issues with some arthritis in some of, in both of my thumbs. Mm. Uh, and when I started practicing a lot, they started flaring up. And I'm thinking, man, if I put this off uh, for 30 years just to have this, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, but it's something I work around and uh, actually, well, hopefully won't need any surgery for down the road because as most doctors say, uh, surgery is for patients only. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you much for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Bob Biber is a retired urologist who will play next week at the Clyburn International Amateur Piano Competition in Texas. This is him playing Schubert's Impromptu in E-flat major. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.